2: From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Before we get into it, it just came to our attention that this is our 200th episode of Postmortem. We are in our sixth season, and I just can't believe we've come this far, and we have a really good show to celebrate with you. Anyway... Back to business. Decades ago, something came clear to me that people outside of the horror genre just do not understand that virtually all of the writers and filmmakers I know, and I know a lot from my many years working in the field, are among the kindest, most generous, most sensitive people I've ever met. Many people believe that the creators of terrors, cinematic gore, and nightmares are indeed nightmarish themselves. I can put the lie to that right now. They are almost without exception, intelligent, perceptive, passionate people who not only care about what they create, they also care about the world around them. They are socially aware and involved, and if confronted with real gore and bloodshed, would probably become a bit woozy. Fake blood is one thing, a real battered body, quite another. Why is this so? i've always thought that it had a lot to do with the nature of our work we dream awake confronting our fears in the play pretend world we don't repress our fears we get them out and not only do we get them out we share them perhaps we create nightmares so that you don't have to i don't know about everyone else but though i may dream i rarely remember those dreams Perhaps it is because every time I sit down to write, I am creating stories, many of them nightmarish, from the pit of my psyche, hoping to find fears that you and I might have in common. Because of the nature of the shared experience in a movie theater, fear is much more frightening when the full theater is screaming, just like comedy is funnier when the whole house is laughing. But with rare exceptions, the people I've met in this wonderful world of the weird and the horrible have been anything but. And part of that might be because our genre is so often considered a gutter genre, something to be ashamed of, something disreputable. So many of the writers and producers and directors in horror seem to have been outsiders and outcasts themselves and are bonded by our outsiderness. I've spoken of this many times, but there are not really any Western film festivals or comedy film festivals or military movie festivals, but there are horror movie festivals all around the world, and they bring us together to find special movies that we might otherwise have missed. If you've never been to a genre film festival and you're a horror fan, you've really missed out. You will find yourself surrounded by people who are passionate about the movies and books and want to share, and they are some of the kindest and friendliest people on the planet. Our guests today are about to release their new film, The Black Phone, on the big screen. Director Scott Derrickson and his co-writer C. Robert Cargill have ridden a roller coaster of genre titles you'll all be familiar with, and we're going to dig into their new Blumhouse release right after this. June is Pride Month and Dread Central has produced a slew of original content featuring some of the most exciting voices in queer horror. In honor of its Severn Film's Blu-ray release, Dread sat down with legendary drag queen Peaches Christ to unpack their splatter-happy gorehouse classic All About Evil. Starring Natasha Leon, Thomas Decker, and Cassandra Elvira Peterson, All About Evil is a camp classic you can't afford to miss. Visit DreadCentral.com now to see their Pride content, dropping every day this month. So Scott, you went to Biola University, which is very much a, a highly vaunted Christian school. Tell me about the study of theology and film that that are seem to be a weird combination.
0: Uh, yeah, I, uh, boy, I didn't expect that to be the first question. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, and Biola is a you know, fairly conservative evangelical college, which I have, you know, I've sort of pretty aggressively distanced myself from evangelicalism since that time but you know I, i i'm glad that i went there and and uh i i find um the historical position of christian perspective on art to be very embracing of the horrific you know you walk through uh you know the Prado Museum in Madrid, and and what, look at all that Spanish art. It's just it's just uh, storyboards of horror. You know, floor uh, after yeah. floor of Christian suffering, torture, and death.
2: Well, um, the Catholic Church is filled with uh, sanguinary imagery
0: as well. I mean, yeah,
2: Christianity so in general. It,
0: it is, it, 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 I, and I think you know Dante's uh, Inferno. I think might be the, the finest uh, work of, of of the horrific that's ever been written. Um, you know, there's plenty of darkness in paradise lost all these things. So, so for me, you know, there's a a historical precedent that I, that I very much embrace. And I got a pretty classical education when I went to Biola specifically. So that was helpful. But I think that it's, it's very interesting the way that the Catholic perspective, which is really the historical uh, Christian church and it's embracing of the macabre. I mean, the central image of the crucifixion, you know, uh, this is torture porn, you know, Um, and, and and that's that the blood imagery, all of that is the martyrdom of the saints, all that very normal, very natural for, um, for the, for Catholics, which is why I think there are so many great Catholic filmmakers, you know, internationally and, and, and in America, you know, whether they're presently practicing Catholics or not there, you know, without Catholicism, there'd be no Martin Scorsese evangelicalism, however, is, is, is a religion of words. You know, and, and the Protestant church, for the most part, a, relig- a, a religion of words, but really true for evangelicalism. Uh, there's no there's no uh, bloody Jesus on the cross in any evangelical churches. You know, I, I think that there's a sanitized, non-visual, non-embracing uh, 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 of the darkness that goes in with that tradition. So there it is a little odd that I gravitated as hard into it as I did. Um, but, but for me, for me, the, you know, I can't separate, uh, spirituality from art. And for me, that intersection often lies in, in the horrific and in, in horror itself. And, and I, it it seems to me that, uh, it seems like the most natural thing in the world. The last thing I'll say about it, I'll, 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 we'll move on, but, you know, coming out of first fundamentalism i wasn't raised in a christian home but i became i joined a fundamentalist church in high school and then really? so this went,
2: was something you did that was not in accordance with how you were raised
0: it was i had my own conversion experience uh, you know at a, at, a, at a christian at a fundamentalist christian camp and i mean really strict fundamentalism the high school i went to i went to bob jones university for national oh, wow. speech and debate tournaments and you know you couldn't even listen to rock music you know, wow. uh, it was really conservative. So Biola was sort of a, 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 a more liberal, open-minded place compared well, to where that's I, I started. <laughs> but, but I think that, that um, you know, once that fundamentalism sort of fills you with the compacting fear and denial of every, denial of the world, denial of sex, denial of, of, of ideas, if you start to break out of it, the, the, the breaking out of it is, becomes kind of violent. And, and, and I, I really credit my years in fundamentalism and in evangelicalism with that compacting pressure that once you break out of it, it's like a big bang. It never stops expanding. And well, was, so I, I think for me, horror is like I always call it the genre of non-denial. I think I'm drawn to it because it's an act of rebellion against the denial of typical American conservative Christianity.
2: Was there a last straw that booted you from this belief?
0: I mean, I think that 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 yes, I think that it was starting at the time I was at Biola, which was in the late '80s. It was starting then under Reagan, and 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 then really has just gone uh, insane. But the 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 overtaking of evangelicalism by Christian nationalism, the the merging of nationalism and faith, uh, is has has completely contaminated. An utterly corrupted evangelicalism now to where I think of that word as a pure pejorative. And and uh, and the more that occurred over my life, uh, the, the, the less I wanted anything to do with it.
2: So what about the arts? Well, actually, Cargo, let's get to your background. You were a military brat. You went from city to city to city with your dad uh, as a member of the military. Tell me about that upbringing.
1: Oh, well, I mean, it's it's a very surreal upbringing, especially when you, you and you don't think about it as being surreal when you're in it. it, it just feels very normal. And the first time you live off base, it is a culture shock, it is, you know, you, you go from this very rigid, diverse environment, uh, where everyone is, is regimented based upon their the, the military class as opposed to uh, traditional social classes. So, Uh, I grew up in a very, very diverse neighborhood with, you know, uh, Black, Hispanic, Asian families, Jewish families all living together. And us being, us kids being bound together by the fact that our parents were all enlisted. Uh, uh people in the military whereas there are these other kids which were effectively the rich kids whose parents were the officers kids and they lived in larger houses the officers were paid higher wages and thus those kids had the video game systems and the cooler bikes and we were we were the poor struggling kids essentially although there was no real struggle on an Air Force base because your your housing is taken care of your your um uh, uh all your, your utilities are paid for yeah. yeah it's uh, you know and and every and the thing is is it it forged who i am as a movie lover because it was such a safe environment my mother felt safe dropping me off at the movie theater when i was 5 years old and because there was always a security police officer stationed there and my mom would say hey my son's going to watch a movie and they'd be like okay and and then i'd go in and watch a movie while she would go shopping And so I'm in the movie theater at five years old watching matinees by myself, uh, and I never stopped, Uh, and uh, that really forged me into kind of the the nerd that I am, and uh, fortunately it allowed me to travel around and see the world, I got to live in Michigan and New York and Arizona. Uh, and I was born here in Texas. And then my dad wanted to, uh, make sure that me and my sister both graduated from the same high school that we started in. So, uh, he made sure to take a long, um, a long assignment, which was back in San Antonio. So I returned to the town of my birth, uh, and then, you know, spent my high school years there, met a girl, fell in love and, uh, followed her up to Austin and we've been together ever since. So, um, that is it, it. It really is an interesting um, it's, it's an interesting world to grow up in, but it's a very interesting world to like I grew up in a very conservative household um, and uh, watching politics and watching, you know, conservatives discuss politics and having grown up in what is effectively a very socialist environment. You know, everything was taken care of by the government. The government told you uh, how, you know, told your dad how he had to wear his hair. Uh, how he was allowed to wear his facial hair, um, you know what 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 to wear. Uh, you could be booted out of the military for thing infractions like uh, uh, adultery uh, or drug use. Like your entire career hung on things that don't necessarily um, end your life in the civilian world. Uh, and so it was a very weird environment to come out of, and then kind of experience the world outside and seeing how it was a very very different place.
2: Well, both of you seem to have come from a place that was very conservative. Uh, is perhaps your interest in the horror genre a reaction to that? Mine isn't.
1: Uh, my, my love of the horror genre uh, just comes from uh, uh, the, my, my childhood. Uh, I, I was, uh, my, my, my origin story is really I had a huge crush on Drew Barrymore. Uh, We're the exact same age and um, uh, I was, you know, saw her in movies and I was just in love with her. My aunt, who is about five years older than me, knew this and uh, knew I really wanted to see this new um, uh, Drew Barrymore movie that was coming out. My parents were like, we're not taking you to a Stephen King movie. That's not going to happen. (laughs) And so uh, my aunt went out and bought me the book with her picture on the cover and my parents flipped out and they're like, why are you buying our child the Stephen King novel? And she was like, he's not going to read it. He's going to look at the girl on the cover. Like, let him be an eight-year-old. Oink, and I read, yeah. uh, I read that book cover to cover three times. And <laughs> on the third time through, I was like, the Stephen King guy does this for a living. I want to do this. And, uh, I fell into the world of horror after that and, uh, just grew up on, on watching tons of it. I met a great guy in middle school named Alex Miller, who was, whose parents was totally cool with him watching everything. So I would go over and spend Friday and Saturday nights over at his place. And he'd be like, all right, let's go through the first three Friday, the 13th tonight. And, uh, just by the time I got to high school, I'd, I had been fully, deeply immersed in all of it. And so it's something that was always in my blood.
2: Well, Scott, you've said biblical stories and their sanguinary nature and the art that comes out of belief was something that influenced you a lot. Where did it start for you thinking of you could actually write and make movies?
0: Well, I, you know, I. I it goes really back to early childhood for me. I had a pretty traumatic childhood. Uh, the, the primary emotion I associate with my childhood experience is fear. I was a very scared kid for a lot of the reasons that, that you'll see in the black bone. You know, is very much taken from the kind of neighborhood and the kind of bullying and and uh, uh, just the kind of world that I lived in. There was violence in my household, um, and and I think that at that time I was drawn. Already toward the macabre, I used to build haunted houses in our basement, you know, and bring and bring uh, the neighborhood kids through. And I remember always drawing a lot of really dark images of you know cemeteries and things like that. I I, I always felt that there was a kind of uh, I felt the catharsis of it. I felt the cathartic power of being able to to release some of the fear uh, by by embracing it by by uh, uh, embracing it and controlling it, manipulating it. And then you know, I think that that it, you know the conversion experience that I told you about was in middle school or at the end of middle school, early high schools, ninth grade, middle of eighth grade is when it happened. And um, and I think that my I was drawn into fundamentalism because it was such a safe environment. You know, I felt like it was a place where uh, where I was protected um, by the smallness of that world, and it was it gave me a lot of comfort. And I and I think you know, so sort of all that took a hiatus for a while, and and then as I started to to re uh, engage with with my own fears, um, I was just naturally drawn back into horror, you know, and and that was uh, something that started to occur in, in college, a little bit in high school watching. You know, watching uh, uh, the Halloween movies and Phantasm and these different great movies that were now available on the brand new VHS systems that everybody had. <laughs> so I, I think that I started to, to, to get back into it then. But it was when I was in film school that I really had where the light really went on for me. And it went on for me um, when I saw Suspiria. Um, oh wow! I had I had been fortunate enough. The, the saving grace in my life is that my 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 family did see a ton of movies. I mean, a ton. My my parents didn't like horror, so they never took us to horror films. But we would sometimes like go to a matinee, eat dinner, and then go to a double feature at the drive-in. So I would sometimes wow. see three, three movies in a in a day, you know. And so I loved movies. I I had seen more movies by the time I graduated from high school than most people probably see in their life, and and. When I was in film school and I saw Suspiria, I suddenly, a light went on for me where I recognized, my God, because I was really into the artfulness of cinema. I really loved international film. I loved, Kurosawa was my favorite director. I loved the history of European cinema. And then when I saw Suspiria, I was like, wait a second. So you can really blend high artistic aspiration with straight up slasher horror you know, and which is what that movie is, you know, it's a piece of high art, but it's also a very conventional slasher movie in a lot of ways. And that, that opened my brain up to feeling like if I go this direction, not only do I have uh, a, a, a genre where I'm I'm probably more free than in any other genre to explore issues of, of faith that matter to me, because the genre is so inherently mystical with all of its demons and ghosts and, and, and whatnot. But it was also I felt like, I think I can make a contribution here. I think I can actually, I can, I can bring something to the table if I go this direction. And, uh, and, 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 you know, I think the deeper draw was I just had a lot of personal fear to confront. And, the, and my career has been, uh, has been that. You know, both, both my career professionally as a creative director, but also my adult life as a uh, film consumer, because I am a film fan first and a filmmaker second. But I, my love for horror has all been a way to, you know, go into the unspoken and unspeakable fears that I feel about the world, about myself, about people around me, about nature, all of it. So it was a, it, for me, the narrative that I have of my own life is inextricable from my relationship with horror art and particularly horror cinema.
2: So when you're talking about film school, uh, this is not Biola, this is
0: USC. That was USC, yeah. Yeah, and it was, it was actually two things. I, I, it was two things that happened about the same time. I, I saw Suspiria, and a friend of mine uh, gave me a, a book that I had not read. I had read different books by C.S. Lewis, but a friend of mine, who was not a religious guy at all, said, have you read The screw Tape Letters? He had just read it. And I said, I said I, of course, I know about it, but I've never read it. And I read the Screw Tape Letters, which is uh, uh, this C.S. Lewis's greatest work, in my opinion. This is, you know, some people think it's a silly book. I think it's brilliant. Um, it, it's a conversation between two demons about how to best, you know, uh, torture and 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 uh, uh, demoralize a, a particular given person, human person. And when I read that, I also felt like, wow, you know, here's this book about that's really all the whole book is just conversations between these two demons, and it's very very moral and, and, and yet everything's inverted. And it was so fascinating to me. And, I, and again, I had that feeling of like, there's something else here. There's like a, there's an excitement to what this genre can do. And, and how uh, my interest in ideas and my interest in faith and my interest in exploring fear all just ca- kind of came together. And it was like, this is the path I'm gonna take. And it was a deliberate choice, you know? And, and the last thing I'll say that, go, you know, the, I made a short film that was kind of a scary short film. And I was at a film festival in Indianapolis as a film student at USC and Robert Wise was getting a lifetime achievement award there. And I asked him if I could have dinner with him. And he said, yes. So I sat down alone with Robert Wise, who is retired. He had made 40 films. And we talked about the horror genre because he started out in horror, you know, he started out making the, Val those great, the, the, all the, great, the great Val Luton films. Yeah. And, he, and he was very encouraging to me about working in horror. And he, you know, and of course the haunting being his horror masterpiece, but having started out on it, he said the great thing about starting it in horror is it really demonstrates what you can do cinematically. There's no other genre where you utilize uh, sound and image with more power than you do in horror. And I've always remembered that, you know, and and, and he said it, it, it demonstrates what kind of craftsmanship you have, and of course he uh, not only you know did that, but then returned to it, you know, in his prime, and and, and made made some other horror films that are that are fantastic. So well, and all, the
2: haunting I'll, is the haunting is like a master class in how to make a horror movie.
0: Yeah, I I, I think the haunting is as good as a horror film can be. I mean, yeah. when you're talking about classic black and white American horror. It's really king of the hill, in my opinion.
2: Well, when uh, despite all of its transgressiveness, the horror genre seems to be maybe the most moralistic of all
0: as well. I, it's, well a, it's very hard to make an a- amoral horror film. I mean, I've seen them. <laughs> we all have. Yeah. You know? Yes. We've all we've all seen those movies that afterwards we just need a shower. We're like, <laughs> I I don't know that that, that did me any good. Um, but but for the most part, it, it's hard to make a, a horror film that does not have a moral point of view it really it's inherent in the genre
2: well carl uh, we no. Oh, no go ahead go
1: ahead oh, we, we uh, joe hill uh famously said that uh um uh horror isn't about extreme sadism it's about extreme empathy uh, and in order to make horror, you have to be an empathetic person. You have to be able to convey this character that the audience is going to completely identify with. And when they are, when they are subjected to the terrors of the film, the audience will feel that terror as well, even though they are in no danger. And that's key to horror. And I think that goes back to what you were talking about at the beginning of the, at the top of the show, which is very much, that is why so many, horror filmmakers are great people, it's because they're empathetic people. They're people who enjoy the genre, who enjoy feeling emotions for other people and uh and can convey that and can create those characters that do feel very real to audiences.
2: Well, Cargill, you started out as a film critic for Ain't It New, Ain't It Cool News. You were massa, (laughs) massa worm. (laughs) Masa worm. I even (laughs) I even laugh to say it. But I'd love to hear about the transition from film critic to novelist to screenwriter um, and podcaster, because you start out reviewing other artists' work and what the karma is when you're on the other side as one of those creators and maybe not not uh, expounding upon your your opinions on other people's work later on as the career evolves.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, the the thing is, is yeah, I I mean, I, I'd always wanted to be a writer. I'd figured out like I wanted to write since I was eight. I just didn't know what I wanted to write, and you know, at times I wanted to write novels. At times I wanted to write movies. When I was thirteen, I read a movie review. I, I mean, I'd been reading reviews, but I read this movie review for um, uh, uh, Return of the Living Dead part two. And <laughs> it it was that day that it dawned on me that somebody gets paid to do that, to go and see movies and then talk about it. And I'm like, I want to go see horror movies and write about it and get paid for it. So I added to the checklist of things I wanted to be when I grow up a film critic. <laughs> and I was working at being a novelist at, at a very young age. I wrote my, my, my first uh, terrible, terrible novel when I was 21 uh uh that never went anywhere um had a horrible experience getting an agent that turned out to be you know a scam artist and was actually a famous scam artist throughout the the novel writing thing by the time i was 24 i was like i'm done i'm never gonna make it i'm washed up Uh, i'm out uh and then i was approached by eric vespi at ain't cool news we had become friends and he was just like hey we've got this slot open you're a good writer You write, uh, uh, you know, you you know, movies you should write with us. And somebody else had asked me to write a review of a movie that I'd seen early and that had done very well. And so that just led into me working at a cool news. Um, And one of the things I was proudest of at the time was I would get reached out to by screenwriters, by directors, and they would overwhelmingly tell me that they thought I was the fairest critic they had read that I was, you know, that I would support films that other people didn't support, uh, that I would would give fair criticisms to popular films and that I, was, that I always treated the artist fairly, like I understood where they were on the other side. Um, and uh, over the time, uh, I saw how the internet was changing. You know, I got in at this moment that was very much where Ain't It Cool News was the rolling stone of the internet. Everyone in Hollywood wanted to be on the front page. Everyone wanted to get mentioned. Um, we, you know, we would travel and go on set visits or go to bars and people would recognize, I remember the first time I'm 25 years old, I'm a video store clerk. I don't get paid for ain't it cool news. I'm in a bar with a young actor who I met on a set visit and Vince Vaughn recognizes me and comes up and he's like, Hey, I remember you. You're one of those ain't it cool guys. Um, and I'm like, why does Vince Vaughn know who the fuck I am? Like, this is, what, what is this? Um, and uh, But I saw how things started changing where eventually uh, it went from being a number, uh, you know, a handful of big sites on the internet that all kind of had this very quiet network behind the scenes that all policed each other and made sure nobody went out of bounds, nobody got everybody into trouble that, you know, uh, and, and made sure everyone was being fair to one another and sending traffic the, the, the way of the people who broke the story. And then people started getting in around 2006 that were like, well, I can just post a link to someone else's story and rewrite the things because it's news. They don't own the rights to that and uh, do my own thing. we saw this new generation of film sites crop up that weren't actually generating news, weren't actually generating reviews. And as a result, I saw that the golden age of this this uh, what was happening on the web was going to end. And so I talked to a bunch of these webmasters and said, if we keep doing this, there's not going to be room for anybody. The entire industry is going to go down to the toilet and it's going to end up being only able to afford interns to write for everybody. And uh, nobody listened. They called me Cargill Little. Uh, <laughs> the sky is falling. The sky is falling. Right. And so I realized I needed to get out. And so I'd been wanting to write a book. I'd had an idea for a book and I was like, you know what? I'm going to try my hand at writing a novel again. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write what is officially my first novel. Uh, And as I was working on that, uh, I had slowly become friends with this director online who had directed a movie called The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Um, Yeah, I wonder who that would be. I wonder who that is. A really talented young guy. Um, really like him. He uh, started reaching out to me, writing me emails because he liked my reviews and often found himself reading my review and going, wait, this is literally what I just told my wife in the car on the way <laughs> home
0: from the movie. And in fact, I, I remember specifically the movie that I, cause I, he would write, Cargo would write reviews where he would pan something that everyone raved about and I would be in agreement with him. And, but he, every time he raved about something that everybody hated, I'd go see it and I would love it. And, and like the fourth or fifth time that happened was William Friedkin's Bug. yes. And, I, and, and, and that was not that was not a critically uh, loved film, but Cargill wrote a great review of it. I went to see it because of that review. And that's when I reached out. I was like, dude, you, you've sent me to like five great films that that no one else liked. And uh, <laughs> and, and, and I was just like, I, I really appreciate this because, uh, you know, I love the movie. That's 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 when the correspondence started.
2: So the friendship turned into a collaboration. But before that, Scott, I'd love to hear how you had your first opportunity. I guess your first published or produced screenplay was Urban Legends, um, the final cut. So how did that come to be?
0: Well, it was it, it was actually that happened about the same time that I did the the direct DVD Hellraiser movie. And so right, what, that's it ha- inferno, what it happened, right? Yeah. And what had happened was I, you know, I was a, I was a baby writer. Um, I had a, a manager who I'm still with, who was my agent. He was at a very small a- agency called major clients agency. I still think that's funny. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and David McIlvain is his name. He's, he's still, he's a, both me and Cargill's manager. Um, and David, uh, had, had, you know, called me up and said, um, uh, Dimension Pictures is looking for uh, so- someone to write a new Hellraiser movie, um, you know, for for their a new DVD franchise. And I was like, I don't think I'm right for that because I I love horror, but you know, body horror not always really my thing. I really admire Clive Barker's first film, but I wasn't a, the biggest fan of the of the of the franchise. I didn't think I was right for it. So I came up with an idea for it, sort of half heartedly went and pitched it, got the job immediately. And I had a different writing partner at that time. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm proud of that film. I still have a soft sp- place in my heart for that film, but the script was really great. The, the script was better than the movie that I directed. And, um, and that got me enough attention to get in the room uh, to pitch for the, the sequel to urban legend. And, and that, that was the first real studio gig that I got, you know, was, uh, um, was, was writing that script. And, and, you know, it's a it's a fun thing to look back on. I do think that our first draft uh, of that script was had some kind of brilliance to it, and uh, and the movie doesn't have brilliance to it. Uh, it was it was it was highly developed after the first draft. It was greenlit on the first draft, and then you know, 15 drafts later, you get the movie that that that's that's out there. But mm-hmm. yeah, that was that was where it started. Was sort of in the same year doing uh, the Hellraiser movie for the Weinstein's and uh, and writing Urban Legend.
2: And then they gave you the opportunity, your first opportunity to direct a uh, feature film. But that opened the door to you doing The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which seems to me to combine some areas of interest for you, not just the horror genre, but spiritually based exorcism coming from the church, uh, all of that. uh, And it was a big success. So tell me about uh, what that was like, that transition for you.
0: Well, it, it, there was a there was about a four or five year gap in between there, and again, because Urban Legend had gotten made, that helped me as a in my writing career. Um, the script for Hellraiser was great. So what happened was for about four to five years, I had a pretty lucrative writing career, and and I was just doing screenplays. I was doing a lot of assigned writing work. I think I wrote three or four scripts for the for the for the Weinstein's, and uh, um, the monsters that they were. Uh, that was unpleasant. Um, and, you know, and I, I, I had done a big writing assignment for Jerry Bruckheimer for a script called Beware the Night that ended up becoming the film Delivers from Evil 10 years later that I, that I directed. Wow. Um, but I had written a draft of that, you know, back in like 2003, 2004, something like that. But I, I was getting really frustrated. It was it was a it's a kind of and every professional writer who doesn't get things made does this feeling you feel you're grateful. You're making a living. You're you're uh, you're writing scripts. You're getting paid well. Um, but, but all all the work that you do, you know, four or five people read it and then it's, then it's gone. And, and, and I started to feel really soul sick that I was doing all this work and I wasn't making anything. And so I was looking for the idea that would be something my plan was, I got to write something so good that, that, that a studio will make it, or even an independent company will make it. And I can hold it hostage and say, you, you, I have to direct it because nobody was trying to hire me as a director. And uh, and so I uh, when I did when I was writing Beware the Night, the, the police officer who's this paranormal investigative cop in New York City named Ralph Sarchi, he handed me an out of print book called The Exorcism of Annalise Michelle written by a by an anthropologist that had been out of print since the 70s. Wow. And, and he said, I think this is one of the best documented cases of possession i would ever read. And I was like, OK, great. So I read that and. I was like, "This is it. This is the idea. This is-. so you know." So I op- I got a hold of the author, and optioned it for hundred dollars, mm-hmm. and uh, and then and then went and re- wrote that on spec, and and uh, and was just determined that that would be, you know, my break into studio feature directing, which is what happened.
2: And it's interesting because you bounce, even though the Blumhouse pictures are distributed by Universal, they're really independent movies. And the size and scope is much different than say, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Yeah. and in the case of Doctor Strange, you're going into a Marvel creative universe where there are a lot of rules and a lot of things that you have to deal with, um, but you bounce back and forth. From Doctor Strange in 2016 to doing Black Phone, which we'll get into. So I'm I'm curious as to how your approach changes when you're doing something that is so filled with parameters, and then the more in, small size that you don't have to please as many masters.
0: Well, you know, it, it depends because I, uh, I I think that 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 what matters is who's your creative partner in the studio process. You know. I really liked delivers from evil. It was not a critically acclaimed film. Um, it did okay. Financially. It was the movie I wanted to make. And Jerry Bruckheimer was the producer. Jerry was very protective of my vision for that movie, you know? So, um, I had a real fight with the studio on that movie, but I had a a bodyguard in the producer in Jerry and, and in the case of Marvel and I think Cargill feels the same way, you know, Kevin, Feige is a kind of, Kevin Feige is an artist. You know, he's the only producer and definitely the only studio head that I know who has really, at least in the period of time that we were working with him, really tortures himself over the quality of the work. He, cares, he, he puts himself through a, a, an artistic process of wanting it to be good. And, and, and he always, it's always the best idea that wins out. So I found the collaborative nature of that to be very uh, wonderful and, and not at all constraining. Um, it is different, however, than Sinister and Black Phone, which incardo will attest to this as well. On those movies, we wrote them quickly. We never took any notes on the scripts. Um, we got notes, but we just didn't do them because most <laughs> of them were most of them were bad. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And, and then and then we made the movie exactly the way that we wanted to make it. And, and And Jason Blum has, you know, I can't speak for anybody else, but I know that in my experience, hundred percent protective of me uh, creatively and 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 he has disagreed about things that I've done but when I tell him it's what I want to do he backs me every time you know so I had final cut actually on sinister um, I didn't have final cut on the black foam but he effectively gave me final cut because there were notes that would come in things that um, that his own executives and that universal and different people would want to change and he would be like you know, I tell him, I don't want to change that. he would be like, then don't. You know, and he he just was was very protective. So it's there is there is a, a, I have had more authorish control, uh, and I would say that for both Cargill and I as 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 as, a, as creative partners. But I will say also that movie making is movie making. Man, every you know, whether it's a two hundred million dollar Doctor Strange movie or a three million dollar Sinister movie, you don't have enough time. You don't have enough money. You always you always need a little bit more, you know, so the pressure is always very similar. Um, but the, 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 the thing that I've I've managed to avoid since Day of the Earth is still is I haven't gotten into a situation where I haven't been able to make the movie that I wanted to make. Um, it was a big fight on Us from Evil, but it wasn't a, it was never a fight on Doctor Strange. And it was certainly never a fight on the on the Blumhouse movies we made.
2: Well, your first collaboration between the two of you, gentlemen, was at least to be produced, was sinister. So, tell me about the conception of that, uh, uh, Cargo.
0: Uh, I, 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 I Cargo, you, you got to tell the story of how, how it first happened. It's yeah, well so so,
1: so long story short is that I had a nightmare uh, uh after watching The Ring and I had a nightmare of going into my attic and finding a super 8 projector and finding a bunch of reels and spun it up and it was the opening shot of sinister it's a family covered with burlap sacks hanging from a tree uh and that image haunted me for weeks. And uh, after after I couldn't shake it, I realized, oh, there's a story here. Maybe maybe there's a horror movie in this. And so I spent a couple of years just kind of spinning the wheels and I would bounce it off, you know, horror filmmakers that I knew uh, through Ain't It Cool over the years and pitch it to them. And once I got to the point that I, when I pitched to people and they got goosebumps and they're like, oh, oh, uh, that's really good. Then I knew I had something. Uh, and, uh, I was, I went to Las Vegas with my wife. Some friends were like, Hey, we've never been to Vegas. We can't really afford to do it, but we could, if we split a room, you want to go to Vegas. And we were like, yeah, we want to go to Vegas. And <laughs> I started tweeting about my adventures. Um, cause it was back, it was back in the early days of Twitter when you didn't have to worry about your location or people, you know, being overly judgy. You didn't have so many followers. So, uh, I was tweeting about my adventures, and Scott and I followed each other on Twitter. And he's like, "Hey, you're in Vegas. I'm in Vegas. We should get together." And I was like, "That sounds rad. Let's get together for a drink." And so we got together at the Mandalay Bay, and uh, we decided to, you know, just have a couple drinks and, and shoot the shit. And uh, we had met in person previously uh because i had uh um uh, done a favor for scott and as a thank you he uh, was like can i bring you to the se- to the premiere of day the earth stood still can and i was like yeah so we ended up i went to the premiere and we hung out and hit it off like peas and carrots and became close friends after that and so when we were both in vegas together we're like yeah we're gonna get a drink and so uh i'm five white russians in Um, and Scott is, uh, has two different people talking to him, Jason Blum and Roy Lee about this new model of, Hey, we give you, you give us a good idea. We give you a small amount of money and you get final cut. And they were kind of racing each other to who could get that model out first. And Scott said, can I get your professional opinion? And he asked if he could pitch me this idea he had. So he pitched me the idea and I gave him my professional opinion. I gave him my notes and, uh, I said, Hey, you know, uh, I've had this idea rattling around in my brain for a while. Can I pitch you my idea? And he goes, all right, everybody pitches me once. Here's your one time pitch me. <laughs> and I pitched him Sinister. And at the end of the pitch, he said, holy shit. I know who wants to make that movie. I have to make that movie. And at that point, we just started talking about it. And Scott told me, hey, look, um, uh, go ahead and write up a three to five page uh, 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 treatment uh register it with the wga send it to me and i'll take it out next week and i said oh yeah sure absolutely and so I went home went back to the hotel really excited about it next day i'm walking through the lobby of my hotel scott's playing cards in my hotel and i go oh, hey scott and he goes oh hey man hey i'm sitting I'm, I'm out this round but i'm about to jump back in but hey when you get home tomorrow i want you to write a three to five page treatment register it with the wga and i'll take it out next week i'm like great absolutely. And just like, wow, this guy, this guy seems serious. As we fly home, uh, uh, I'm the next day I'm in bed. I've been home for 20 minutes, the phone rings and my wife comes in and goes, it's Scott. I was like, all right, I'll take it. And uh, he's like, "Hey, man, I know you're probably Vegas, but uh, I just want to remind you write a three to five page treatment uh, with the WGA, <laughs> and uh, uh, I'll take it out next week." And I'm like, "All right, this guy's fucking serious." I get ten hours of sleep. I wake up and I write a five page treatment, register it with the WGA, send it to Scott, and a week and a half later, I'm in offices in dueling meetings back to back with Jason Blum and Roy Lee, and they both want the movie and they nice bid on it. Place to be. Yeah, they they both bid on it, and uh, um, Jason won out um and uh he 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 looked me dead in the eye and just said look this idea is genius it's so genius someone else is going to have it in six months so we need to make this movie now um (laughs) and uh so he put it he put a rocket on rails and that was in late January uh we me and Scott had a draft by mid-March and we were on set in September Uh, like it just, it just, and you know, I got reps and, and the first thing David McElvain, who we already talked about said to me, he goes, you know, it doesn't happen this fast, right? I'm like, I've been covering this 10 years. I know this does not happen. He goes, all right, just as long as you know, this is the only time it's going to go this fast. And that's how it happened.
2: So Scott, let's talk about the subject of franchises. There was a sinister two, of course, there was a doctor strange in the multiverse of madness, and you chose not to be a part of that. Is there a specific reason why?
0: I mean, I, I can't talk about the specific reasons why, you know, we said publicly uh, that Marvel and I agreed to part ways over creative differences. And that was, ex- that's exactly the truth. It really, you know, sometimes when you hear that, it, can, it it's just code for something went sour and you really don't know what, but we, we had creative differences on on the movie that we wanted to make and how we, how we wanted to make it. So we parted ways. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't that I'm against working within, you know, franchise. I like the idea of doing that. Um, But uh, in this case, you know, it, it really goes back to the experience that I had on day, the earth stood still. And I swore to myself after that, I would, I would just never find myself at the end of somebody else's movie. And, and I've been, I've been really true to that. And, uh, and it, you know, sometimes it, it, they, you know, stepping off of Doctor Strange was the hardest decision I've ever made professionally. But uh, thank God, you know, if I hadn't done that, there'd be no Black Phone. And and I think Black the Black Phone is probably uh, the best film that I've made.
2: Which is a, a great time to jump into that movie because it's going to be opening soon and you're both here to talk about it. This is based on a short story by Joe Hill, who's also been on the show, and of course I've worked with his father numerous times. Um, but who was the first one to read the short story and get the idea to make it a movie?
0: I, I was, I, I, had, uh, um, I had had lunch with, uh, with a filmmaker friend of mine, the year that that book was published, we're talking 17, 18 years ago. And uh, I was in Los Feliz, and I walked the street to the Skylight Bookstore in Los Feliz, and went to the horror section. And they had the new horror books on display. There was only probably six or seven books that were the new, you know, horror uh, publications. And I picked up "20th Century Ghost by this guy Joe Hill. And Joe, you know, Joe, to his credit uh, didn't want people to know that he was Stephen King's son. So it was not part of, the, nobody knew at that time. So you I didn't just, know then I had, no, I had, no, I, had, no, I didn't, nobody knew. And, uh, and I, and, and I, and this was the first thing he published. So I stood there and I read the first, it's an anthology book of short stories. I read the first story, which is called best new horror. I remember opening the book, seeing that and being like, oh, this guy's got some balls. <laughs> you know, this is Ryder. Writer. first story is called Best New Horror. This, this, this had better be good. And, uh, and, and I was knocked out. That short story is, is incredible. One of the best horror shorts ever written. And in fact, Cargill and I have, have recently optioned the rights to that and have a, have a, another writer working on a screenplay for it. But I read that and I was like, oh, this guy's amazing. So I bought the book, I read it, and every story, in that anthology book is excellent. You know, there's a short story called "Pop Art" that's not a horror short, but one of the best short stories I've read in any genre. But the Black Phone always stood out to me as a movie. It just felt like an I, it was an idea that really felt to me like uh, uh, it felt very cinematic. It combined a serial killer story with a, with a ghost story. It was contained. It just seemed like a, a so I always had it in my mind. Th- this would would be a great film. And I think that I optioned it at one point. Cargill did, or did we option it at one point and not do anything with it?
1: No, we talked about it right after we wrote Sinister and you brought it to me and said, what do you think? I think we should option this. And I said, we both have a lot of ideas rolling around in our heads right now. We've got a lot of stuff that's fully formed and this needs a first act and a third act. And uh, it's a really good short story, but I think we can... Um, uh, you know, all the work we put into adapting someone else's work, we can put into something original that we don't have to put money down on. Right. And, and we circled it for years talking about it on and off over, over the last decade. And
0: and, and then, and Cargill became friends with Joe as a, as a novelist. So, so he had that relationship. And, and what happened was, you know, when I was in development on, uh, on the sequel to Dr. Strange, on Multiverse of Madness, I'm still proud of the fact that that I came up with that title idea. Um, so I, when I was, I was working on that movie, uh, we had hired another writer to write the first draft, and and she was taking uh, an awful long time uh, to write that first draft, and I had time on my hands, you know, and so Cargill and I, at that time. I had been in therapy for three years, dealing mostly with the trauma of my own childhood, really digging deep into uh, the, my whole history as a kid and, and, uh, and dealing with a lot of, a lot of that stuff. And, and as I was three years into that and feeling like I'd really unearthed a lot and, and reckoned with a lot, I, I started thinking, God, it would be great to take all this, this stuff that I've been feeling and dealing with and, and channel it into, into a movie and my first idea was to try to make uh, an American 400 blows. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that Tru- Truffaut made an autobiographical film about the, the, some of the childhood trauma that he went through as a kid. And it, one of the best, if not the best child performance ever put on film. And, 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 I, and I liked that idea a lot, but I just didn't think there was anything in my particular story that in itself was interesting enough. And I remember talking to Cargill about doing something like that. And he was, he was interested in, in that path too. But then it was the brainstorm of, wait a minute, what if we combine the, this childhood thing that I'm feeling in the neighborhood I grew up in and, and that time period and the uniqueness of it all, what if we combine that with Joe's story, with the black bone? And it was kind of a Eureka moment. And, and, uh, and I, if I remember right, I sort of pitched that to Cargill and he was immediately like, fuck yeah, I'm in, let's do it. So we optioned it from Joe who Cargill knew personally and he optioned it to us immediately. And uh, and we wrote it in like six weeks. So
2: you did it as a spec thing, or you you had pitched it and and were paid to write it? We
0: we we spec'd we, we spec'd it, and and actually I was planning on being off the grid, you know, making, uh, multiverse of madness for for the next year and a half, two years. So we even sent it to <laughs> other directors you know, thankfully they all turned it down. I, I, I knew, <laughs> I, I remember, I, I don't want to go into the list, but I remember the one, the per, I, really, I really liked Karen Kusama as a director oh, for I it. And, we, and, yeah. and I love her too. And I think she's just a brilliant filmmaker. And, and, and I, and I like, I like the idea of a female director for it because of the Gwen character being kind of the soul of that script. And uh, I don't know if she was unavailable or it just wasn't for her, whatever she didn't do it. And, uh, and eventually uh, the timing was just right, you know, in that in that uh, when I hit these creative differences with Marvel and and made the choice to step down uh, pretty quickly after that, I was like, well, we've got the script. Let's go make this, you know, and uh, and and we did it right away. How did it feel to go back to
2: making a movie of more modest means after having all of the tools at your disposal?
0: I mean, it was it was like I said, it you know, they all feel similar to me. The biggest difference to me between making, you know, a, a 200 and some million dollar movie and, and a 3 million dollar movie in Sinister Black Phone was about 18 including covid costs so we probably spent somewhere between 16 and 17 on it those are real numbers not in, you know fake hollywood numbers right and and um and it you know I, the, the only real difference to me experientially is the physical exhaustion of you know you that's what they don't what nobody really can tell you about these giant tentpole movies is 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 the toll that it takes on you like it's like it's like you have to train for it you have to get in shape you know i was pretty unsociable during that time because i was really so focused on on the workload and you shoot for so long you know and it and it's uh that to me was the biggest difference but creatively you know a movie is a movie. it's still actors on sets in the camera you know <laughs> and so yeah. uh, uh, but i but I think it was it was such a the, the thing that the, the, for me was it was so healing for me and 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 uh and rewarding for me to be back on set with Cargill making something so personal with so much control and um and it was a even though the COVID apps aspect of it sort of limited the fun of it because everybody's in masks and, you know, you don't really socialize, you can't recognize who anybody is on set, but it was, it was a really wonderful process. And my, my girlfriend, uh, uh, who became my fiance is now my wife. Maggie yes, Levin, Congratulations.
2: That just hey, happened. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Uh, so Maggie, Maggie shot second unit. It was, it was just a really magical time. You know, it was a really magical experience across the board. And, and, uh, and I think that, um, you know, it was uh, very serendipitous, uh, the way that, that the timing of all those things worked out.
2: Well, and, it has to be great to go onto a set where it's all people, everything is in front of you, and it's not green tennis balls on C-stands.
0: Oh, well, look, I will say that, 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 uh, that shooting green screen is, is hard. Um, shooting green screen is tedious. You know, uh, if you're, if you're you know, shooting, uh, we, we shot for 33 days for the black phone, which is not a long shoot, Um, and, and, uh, you know, we were moving quickly and, and I was, it's one of the reasons why I had to give a lot of uh, material to Maggie, you know, she shot a lot of the super eight material in the movie. And, um, and, you know, we were shooting, I don't know, 24, 25, 26 setups a day, maybe, maybe sometimes exceeding 30 setups a day. And when you're shooting green screen on one of these tentpole movies, you're lucky if you get 10 you know i mean yeah. t- 10 is a good day uh, because they the, the tediousness and the time that it takes to get everything right and oh my god the, the on doctor strange i had this you know brilliant idea i want to i want to shoot a scene where people are fighting forward in time but the a city is undestroying itself in reverse time and of <laughs> course everybody said well, you, you can't do that it's un, un- unshootable and I, we're going to figure out how and you know every shot in that sequence we had to shoot the same shot in motion control. I believe six, six times. We got to do six passes for each shot and get each of those six passes right. And oh, I, I, I the gray in my beard and my, <laughs> my hair came from that one sequence. Oh. You know, my my life was just ticking away as I as I stood there and watched the same shot, you know, tediously being re. Recreated in motion control, and so, well, so I can't I believe
2: that, you still were doing motion control in 2015 because it, it the only much way that, gone by now.
0: It, it was the only way that that particular sequence could be made the That's way that we That's torture.
2: That is yeah. torture working it, with, with yeah. motion control.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's in in you, you really you it really takes years of your life off. You know. So yeah, it was. Uh, I, I and I think that there is, um, there is something. I was fortunate too, though. You know, on Doctor Strange, there's a lot of you know, there's some real emotional scenes. There's some real, you know, the first time that 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 uh, Doctor Strange meets the Ancient One, that's a really organic performance scene. It's like eleven pages of dialogue, or sorry, sorry, it was like seven pages of dialogue, um, and 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 the you know, with with some complex blocking and performance, the fight between between Stephen Strange and and Rachel McAdams uh, uh, Christine is like a little indie performance. You know, so there's some real great performance scenes in that which i'm really grateful but that's where you feel the lifeblood as a director is when you're on set watching actors do what they do you know and and watching them bring something really to life organically and and fortunately, you know the black phone is nothing but that you know there's very few special effects in it and and it 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 was just a really wonderful thing to be uh, on set with these extraordinary kids you know who were giving Uh, their heart and soul to their performances and with ethan bringing his a triple a plus game you know to 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 the role and uh that's when filmmaking is the most fun when you're on set with actors watching the magic happen
2: yeah cargill did you have a different experience on dr strange because of the nature of the structure of the marvel universe uh well i mean only, only in so much
1: as, I mean, it was a big transformative one for me. Like, you know, it's it, when you first get into the industry, you're just, you're like, oh my God, I'm surrounded by all my heroes. Like I grew up watching yeah. all their movies and, and, you know, and you get to know them as people. And eventually you kind of start to realize, oh, hey, maybe I belong here too. Uh, but it was on Dr. Strange where I really, for the first time had this thing where, you know, I walked into what they call the Avengers room, which is the big meeting room where they have meetings. And there's all sorts of, you know, Avengers memorabilia in there. And I'm sitting there and the first day I'm in there, I'm just like, I'm sitting in a chair where all these Titans sit, you know, you know, where <laughs> the, all the Avengers have sat in this room and all the directors who have directed. And these directors are not, not you know, schlubs. This is, you know, some, some of the great directors of our time have sat here. And then I would get into arguments with Kevin Feige over comic book history and occasionally I would win. And, <laughs> uh, and in those moments, I'd be like, Oh, maybe I, it was like, I do belong here. Like I do, you know, uh, I belong in this industry. Like I, I have learned all my training has come out. Um, and, uh, but it was a wonderful experience making that movie. Um, you know, one, one of my favorite screenwriting experiences of all time is on that movie where I walked onto set one morning and I got my backpack over my back and a cup of coffee and uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and Shuatel Ajayafor come rushing up to me in full costume going, oh, thank God, Cargill, you're here. We need to walk through this scene in the script. And so <laughs> I then spent an hour and a half um, during the setup working through, you know, the the dialogue and what each line meant. And they were trying to find the emotion in every beat of that scene. And they wanted me to kind of go through it with them. And uh, uh, and it was this really kind of magical morning where I'm like, oh, my God, this is what I've always wanted to do with my life. This is this is amazing. And it it was just great. And uh, but, yeah, I had a great time, too. But, yeah, I did learn very quickly that, you know, uh, being a screenwriter on a movie set is like being a paramedic. Um, If everything goes to plan, it is the most boring job in the world. (laughs) Um, Nothing happens. It's only when things go very wrong that you have something to do. Um, And the most boring day ever in the life of a screenwriter is action scenes and green screen scenes. Uh, You know, anything where there's not dialogue involved and anything where it's people on wires and they're doing things, there's literally nothing for you to do but go, yep, looks great, Scott, looks awesome. But fantastic. That is, I have done everything that I can do today. So, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, uh, but yeah, I was, everything Scott said were things I was going to to say if he didn't say them, you know, there's never <laughs> enough money is no matter what budget you're at, there's never enough money and you're always cutting scenes or cutting bits because it's, you know, not, uh, you just can't, don't have it in the budget. And that's, that's always a heartbreaker. In fact, weirdly, we have cut more out of our big budget movie than we've ever cut out of our small films. Um, (laughs) So uh, uh, that
2: makes sense. Yeah. Um, We got to wrap it up pretty quick, but Scott, I do want to talk about the casting process because the cast is so important to every movie, but this one in particular, it's small scale and you're working with young people. Uh, and it's also a reunion with Ethan Hawke from sinister. Uh, tell me about the process of casting this, especially the, the lead kids.
0: Well, we, you know, we, there was a massive cattle call looking for, for those two, you know, characters. And of course, all the agents in New York and, and Los Angeles, um, you know, sent their, their, their young clients, uh, to read and sent in self tapes and that sort of thing. Uh, Madeline I think we found first the casting director brought me four or five selects of the people that she really liked Madeline was one of them I watched her she, if you, you know in the, in the movie it's the it's the, the scene with the detectives and I I just was amazed at how perfect her delivery was and not only how perfect it was it made me laugh out loud and but I also could I felt like she had intonations and she had an attitude that I felt like was not only what we wrote, but there was already just in that one scene, another layer of understanding of what this character was. And, and so, you know, I, of course, did a callback audition and read with her a bit. And I was like, oh, I, I struck gold here. Absolute gold. And, and so I, I told the casting director, don't show me anybody else. This, it's it's going to be this kid. We are <clears throat> very fortunate to have found her. Mason Tames, who plays Spinny longer search. You know, we looked for a long time and I was getting nervous, you know, because we were approaching production time and uh and I hadn't found anybody that I thought was was good enough. I think that there was one kid that I was, you know, gonna settle on if I didn't find anybody else. And when I saw Mason's self-tape, Mason had never done a film, and it wasn't it wasn't, you know, a, a home run audition like uh like like Madeline's, but there was definitely something there. So I did several callback auditions with him. And the more I worked with him, the more I started to feel like, oh, I think this kid has uh, a stunning raw talent and, and he may take a little more direction, but but there, but this, this kid's got a gift that, that you can't teach and that, that very few people have, which is specifically the ability to take complex emotional direction and process it within a, the shooting of a single shot he really has an innate ability to process what his character is feeling and emote it with just his eyes and his facial expressions without overacting. And of course, in the movie, I think his performance is flawless, literally. The more I worked on an editorial, the more I was amazed at how nuanced it was, even more nuanced than I realized on set. And so I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, sometimes the one true movie god, you know, rains on your movie, and, and it's very difficult. And sometimes, the one true movie god smiles on your movie. And I, and there was a lot of smiling on this on this movie. To find two kids that are that good was uh, w- was a miracle in my mind. And and I felt so strongly about Madeline. We I was supposed to re, I was told I had to recast her. We were going to shoot in the fall, and uh, she was on a Disney show that had shut down for COVID and and ramped back up. So I got this call or email i don't remember but saying you know, we got to recast uh uh the role of Gwen because madeline's now gone for the fall she has to go back and finish her disney show and uh i called jason blum and said i'm not making this movie without that kid it has to be her wow. and, you know and he said he said are, are you serious you're 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 talking about pushing the whole shoot until january i said yeah and he was like for a nine-year-old I said, yeah. <laughs> and and again to his credit, Jason said, okay, if that if you feel that strongly about it. And when you see the movie, you'll know why. Because and I know, have seen the movie. No, no, nobody could do what nobody else could do what that girl does.
1: Here's here's the thing that Scott's not allowed to say. And I don't even know if Scott realizes it himself, but having worked with him for over a decade now, one of his superpowers is he can identify child actors better than anyone else I've ever seen. Like he can tell when a kid is legit going to, you know, bring the goods and when they're, when they're not going to, and every kid we've ever worked with has been stellar as a result. Like there's never been a moment where like this kid can't act. He just did. It was a great cold read. Scott can smell a good cold read a mile away and knows exactly how to identify someone with the goods like he did with, with Mason. Um, and, uh, it's just a superpower he can it, it's just it's phenomenal
2: well how will you guys be spending opening night drinking <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm, I, I'm on the wagon so uh i'll be watching Cargill drink uh you know uh, it's funny um uh, maggie it, it has been trying to convince me and has convinced me to actually go to some of the some of the uh theaters that are a little on the outskirts in la that, that she likes and and actually watch some audiences, watch the movie. I've never done that. Oh, really? opening, week, opening weekends, you know, I usually go to bed early. I try not to think about it. I, I don't watch the box office numbers. I just sort of out, of out of sight, out of mind. And I generally have a feeling, this is really true. When I finish a movie and it gets released, I don't think of it as mine anymore. I really feel like, okay, I've done my part now. The movie is its own thing. It's out in the world. Now it belongs to the audience. They're going to make of it what they will and uh, and so i don't I don't uh, feel any need to revisit it or anything. But I think on this one, because I've have had such <laughs> such an amazing experience in, in the four four or five screenings that we have had of the movie that I've attended, I think we're gonna go out on on that Friday night and go to a couple theaters and and watch some audience reactions. You know, I think that'll that'll be rewarding.
2: I'm sure it will. I saw it at the Overlook Film Festival and the crowd went wild for it so it was really terrific so guys thank you so much for spending time on the slab with us wishing you good luck and uh, it's a pleasure to have you here and hope to see you again
0: thank you mick it was a great time yeah thanks for having us awesome thanks
1: thank you for listening to Postmortem with mick garris Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.
0: Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast
2: Network.